Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Ion Veterans Weekend, a roundup of the week's most important stories affecting those who served. Presented by University of Maryland Global Campus. There are nearly 20 million, 20 million military, military veterans, veterans in, in the, the U.S. US. Each week, we focus on their stories. Powered by ConnectingVets.com. This, this is CBS Ion Veterans. Ion Veterans. Welcome to another edition of CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. So this hour, we're going to talk about race and racism. And we're going to hear some stories that, for me anyway, I know I won't forget. So my father um, died at the hands of a police shooting where he was unarmed. And the details of his death are are still not well documented. These are the stories of our fellow veterans. And this hour, it's my hope that these conversations will help us all learn something from a really tough week. Now, after George Floyd was killed by a cop in Minneapolis, the protests and subsequent riots affected the entire country. And as I produced this show from near Washington, D.C., I can tell you that when I watched my local 11 o'clock news the other night, I watched parts of the city being ripped apart by violence. I really didn't know what to do. So I called some of the most influential black men that I know. My former Navy shipmate, and a guy who taught me a lot about myself and life when I was just 20-something, Anthony Elder. But we'll start today's show with a man whose opinions I always learn from. Sherman Gillums Jr. is a Marine Corps veteran and Chief Strategy Officer for the Veteran Service Organization, AMVETS. All right, Sherman, how you doing? I'm doing great, Phil. Man, thank you so much for coming on the show with me. Um, what a week, right? Uh. This has been uh, very historic in many ways, uh, but but it's a story still being written. So I, I would say, that, you know, it may be premature to say what a week because we're <laughs> we don't know what lies ahead that that may compare differently to what's happening now. No doubt, and uh, we are at the intersection of so many things going on, from the pandemic to the economic crisis that we've been living through to this entire you know, reaction to a brutal murder and a police brutality, and it's left us all kind of questioning uh, not only the American experience, but like race relations, and that's why I'm so mm-hmm. glad I could have you join me on this call, because 
uh, I'm a white guy from the burbs. I'm a white kid from the burbs of DC. I, you know, I didn't have it rough. I did not grow up uh, wanting or needing or poor or poverty it wasn't a part of my life. But even all that aside, I didn't grow up with any sort of major social problems hanging over my head. And I guess I kind of was inspired when I read uh, a recent op-ed by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar that said that uh, the state of racism in America is like dust in the air and you can't always see it until the sunlight hits it. And I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but that there is an undercurrent of racism in this country that goes almost unnoticed by the majority of us that are just tuning in every day because we've had a black president. We see hip hop as a major musical format. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like all these things that we enjoy seem to be black, white, multicolored of every kind. Yet there is something going on. What's your take on what's going on right now? So I think what we're watching uh, is, is our country in the midst of an identity crisis um, we live with a lot of ambiguity, uh, in some cases, hypocrisy, and, and it's been a, it's, we approach race and, and justice in a sort of schizophrenic manner. And I think it's come to a head right now. George Floyd's death was the flashpoint for problems where all the elements for an explosion came together. And, and I'll use a metaphor. If you think of dynamite, uh, the, the dynamite sticks were these racial tensions. Uh, I'll just look at my own lifetime, O.J. Simpson trial. The South Carolina murder of nine people, Charlottesville, rebel flags. The fuse was George Floyd being killed. That was the fuse. But what lit it was the video. I don't think racism is getting worse. I think it's getting filmed. And it's telling a different story. And then if you think about once that fuse was lit, the gasoline was our inability to even agree that the killing was wrong or obvious. It became this Rorschach test. And we start seeing things from different perspectives. Uh, we know that there are many people executed uh, through these uh, sort of summary executions on the street. We also know that there are bad things happening to police officers out there. Um, and this isn't new. You know, Eugene Williams, a swimmer who died in 1919, his death set off a race riot in Chicago. It's 1967, as we talked about earlier, which was a summer-long series of protests and riots. And, of course, in 68, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, this isn't a new problem. It's just being viewed. And if I could add, without without trying to be too long-winded, no, right, we haven't right. even collectively we haven't even collectively defined it yet. It's too ambiguous. You know, my generation was the first to come of age without legally sanctioned segregation, right? So if you're white at this time and you're accused of being racist, your frame of reference is the KKK and lynching and slavery. Yeah, that's your frame of reference. I'm not that bad. And if you're black and you feel like you've been a victim of racism, it's because you were told. Just like you explained, you were told by your parents around every corner hides the racism monster, and you have to be watchful for it. You have to be uh, mindful in the workplace, how you talk and how you act, because it may cost you your job. Uh, So racism boils down to intent versus impact. Uh, And there are times when it's clear. When you call somebody a racial epithet, you know, that's, that's intent. You see it. But sometimes it's not the intention, it's the impact. So if you're a white police officer and you misidentify somebody, who, who looks like somebody who committed a crime and you arrest that person, that police officer may, may, the problem may be he or she doesn't have relationships with black people and doesn't recognize, you know, the differences. Uh, th- that may be the issue, not the fact that he hates that, that race per se. Yeah, and of course now, you know, social media is highlighting all that. We're seeing it filmed 24-7. It's on the news networks round the clock. Uh, yeah, we are, we are seeing something that is very 
very visceral and it's very hard to watch. Share with me what it was like when you were a young man. Did your family explain to you things that I wouldn't have heard? Like what it's going to be like for you as a young black man in America? Did you get the talk that I never had to get because I'm white? So my father um, died at the hands of a police shooting where he was unarmed. And the details of his death are, are still not well documented. So I don't exactly know what happened. All I know is he was killed. Uh, a police officer who had a, a couple of years on the force shot him. And he didn't have a weapon. Uh, he may have been running from an event uh, of some but nobody, nobody knows. And this was his 70s. I was a year old. So my life began with, with this very thing that we see happening and, and has been cinemized before us in many ways in movies and now in these YouTube clips. That's, that was my beginning. So I didn't know anything about mm. racism from that standpoint. That was just how I grew up, you know. But here's the difference with me. My grandmother and grandfather were very influential in my life. My grandmother got her master's degree and became a high school English teacher early in, in, her, in her adult experience. This is the 50s and 60s where, you know, people weren't supposed to have those opportunities. She was in Chicago, grew up in that area, uh, and later moved east in, in the Maryland, D.C. area. Uh, my grandfather was a Korean War veteran. Uh, he, he fought in the war, came back. He was part of the Great Migration up north. Landed in Buffalo, where there was a lot of industry, a lot of steel industry, a lot of automobile, and became a um, you know a worker in one of the automobile plants, and worked there for forty years. So those two people that were very influential in my life, I can't recall a time either one of them ever mentioned racism or being oppressed in any way. Any, I, I just never can recall a time they were very proud, self sufficient, self determined people. You know, I couldn't say the word ain't around my grandmother. She was very uh, sure about the type of people she wanted my siblings and I and my cousins to be as we grew up. So we didn't we didn't have that chip on our shoulder, if I can refer to it as that. Now, I do recall the, 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 the sort of revelation happening in my uh, early school years where you see you start to see this breaking apart and how certain people are segregated into certain fields of expectation. And I think it's around maybe fourth or fifth grade when I started to see or feel that more white students were considered the smartest automatically. And I was a kid, so I really couldn't process it except, you know, why, why, you know, where, why do we always assume that the kid over here who's well-dressed and, you know, and, and you start to believe in yourself, you start to feed into that and you start to play your role in that until later on where I was the type of kid that always did well on every diagnostic test, every battery test of any type. So I was always smarter than a lot of people, but I wasn't surrounded by my peers in terms of race. I was always in the midst of, of more white students than black students. And I didn't look for that. I didn't want it to be that way. I just, that's, that's just how it played out. Now stick around and we'll have more with Sherman Gillums Jr. from AMVETS. And we'll hear about the undercurrents of racism in the military and the things that he sees that are racist in the world today. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, as I watched the events in the news unfold this week, I couldn't help but feel like I just didn't understand the extent of racism in our country today. I've always worked alongside a diverse group of men and women. So I reached out to my friend Sherman Gillums, a black Marine Corps veteran, now strategy officer with the veteran service organization AMVETS. And we'll pick back up where we talked about racism that he saw 
while in the military. Uh, one example of, of racism that I could point to that was probably the only real example is during a staff meeting, right after uh, the September 11th attacks, we were sitting in a meeting. I was the only black officer. I was the only young one as well. I mean, a lot of the others were, were old seasoned officers. And, uh, and my uh, colonel turns to me and says, uh, you know, hey, Shermer, what do you think Farrakhan is thinking now? Now, I don't know if that was racism necessarily, but it made me feel really uncomfortable to be among all these people in uniform. I'd never tried to set myself apart in any way. I had no affiliation with Farrakhan or the Nation of Islam or anything like that. And I was just as upset about the Twin Towers falling. Why he asked me that out in front of everybody is pretty humiliating. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't call it out as racism because he wasn't a bad leader. He was a great mentor. I just found that inappropriate, uh, and I couldn't do a lot about it. So I guess... In a way, that, that would be one example of some of the anxieties and the microaggressions we call out when we talk about racism in places where other people might not see it that way. Mm. And you're right. Sometimes it is, it's not with malice and a forethought, but it comes out because right. of their lack of perspective. What is it I can do? What is it we can do? You know, I watch some of the, some of the pundits and some of the moderators discuss this, and I think in a way, like anything I suggest or anything I think, it'd be so easy to roll your eyes at because most folks could just look at me and say, well, what do you know, Phil? You grew up in the burbs, a white kid. What do you know right. about our situation? What do you know about our pain? What what needs to be done in this? What needs to get woven into the social fabric so we start getting it right and stop these these murders and stop all these you know powder kegs from lighting off every time somebody dies? Right. I think that the best way to explain it would be through an analogy that, that calls out cognitive dissonance when, when we talk about things like race. And I use, I'll, I'll set it up by saying this. I've got four daughters, two sisters, a mom and a wife. I don't feel like I can even be sexist, much less practice sexism. But am I still capable of saying the wrong thing to a woman in the workplace, being inappropriate, without meaning to, but still having said something that leaves that person maybe believing I'm a sexist because they don't know about my life at home, how much I care about my wife and my mother uh, and my sisters. Yeah, I, I could say the wrong thing and not realize that it's pretty sexist because it's been wired into who I am in many ways that, you know, girls play with dolls, boys play with trucks, you know, girls can't be in the military. So, so, yeah, right. if, a, if a woman comes to me and says, you know, what you, what you said was sexist, I would say, you know what, I, you know, I can't be sexist because I've got all these, you know, it's, it, no, you can't be sexist. Hmm. So I think the problem is you have to listen to people, and it may not be your intention. Sometimes it's just the impact. Sometimes you're that cop, and I make a mistake. I made a mistake. Now, how I, how I atone for that is where you start to see perhaps racism play out. You're not even sorry that you made the mistake. Then you might be going on that, on that on that sort of racism scale in the wrong direction. If you listen and if you allow yourself to be called out, not in a way that's abusive. You shouldn't have to suffer abuse, or you know, if you don't want to live in certain neighborhoods, that's your right. But if you're in a if you're in a position to impact somebody's life uh, as a as a boss or you know where you live in some way, and maybe somebody's doing something wrong, and you don't recognize that person in your neighborhood. If your first instinct is to call the police for everybody you don't recognize then maybe you're not racist. But if your first instinct is to hone in on that individual who's a different race because of what you saw on television, and like Amy Cooper did in, in Central Park when she called the police and said, 
there's this black man who's attacking me and my dog, and you can clearly see that she's lying. That's the problem. This isn't new. It's just being filmed. And to that, um, where do we go with law enforcement? Because that seems to be the intersection where all this pops off. Is there something that law enforcement as a whole needs to realize, or is there something that can change immediately so that we stop repeating the cycle? Just like it was in the military for us, Phil, you've got to police your own. You've got to police your own. You can't have this blue wall, or in our case, the green wall, form whenever one of your own is, is wrong. Uh, we see it with sexual assault in the military. You know, somebody gets accused and you have all the people sort of close ranks around the individual depending on his influence in the unit. Um, a lot of cops are not killers. They don't do that stuff. I, I'll bet many more are, are the good cops that, that would attack this issue if it happened in their precincts. But the, the ones that get on film are the ones we see, and, and as done with black people, we make these sweeping generalizations based on what we see. Um, there are more white people that die by cop shootings than black people. That's a fact. The FBI tracks this stuff. More white folks get killed by police officers than black folks. The problem is, you know, we don't, we don't see, and this is where you start to have this idea of lives having different values. Um, it's, it's, it just seems more tolerable because black people are considered, you know, criminal by birth. And, and this used to happen to the Italians when they, when they first came to the, to the uh, new world and, and some of the other race, race groups that came in, they could, but, but black people couldn't, couldn't quite assimilate as well because of their skin and, their, and, and a lot of things that made it hard to be a, a race in the majority. Uh, so it just looks like they're the other. And, and when things happen to them, people can't relate to it. I think that police officers, the ones that are doing a great job, should continue to do that. The ones that, that see this happening and don't call it out, they're the problem. Uh, I want to end with something that we both kind of relate to, and that's music. And I want to touch on music because, you know, you and I both came up kind of the same, the same generation. And I remember when yeah. like the images of like gangster rap and everything were brand new. And I was a fan, you know, I was a, I was a kid and I grew up on Beastie Boys. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden here comes NWA and here comes, uh, you know, Ice Cube. And here comes all this, here comes all this music. Um, I remember hearing, you know, the sounds of public enemy just vibrating right. the streets of D.C. as a young kid walking around looking, you know, for a place that would take my fake ID. Um, and I was thrilled by that music, but it was telling a story of something I didn't even recognize, of an America right. I knew nothing about. And it was radical, it was original, it was, it, it was a soundtrack of a story that needed to be told. Now fast forward to 2020, and... I still hear in music a lot of imagery and a lot of things that are seemingly glorifying some really negative lifestyles. And I'm wondering, not blaming it on the music, but can we look in the mirror just as we look at law enforcement and say, we need to, we need to change ourselves? Uh, well, a lot of the problem with media, uh, as I said earlier, they, they cinemize our lives and our pains. Now, I don't just refer to black people when I say that. They, they put it, they make it entertainment. And the people that were making those songs back in those days were talking about their pain and talking about uh, the, the plights that they faced. And, it, and, and Hollywood and the media found a way to monetize that. And the people that were getting rich off that didn't look like the people that were making that music. Mm -hmm. These were people in the background who lived in places where it was nowhere near those neighborhoods. So um, it's, it's capitalism. You know, they'll put it out if people buy it. And we are a consumption society. We, we consume 
things that are not good for us in many ways. Uh, I, I think the problem is when we take it too far, when we take that music and start to overlay statistics that we believe tell a, a broader story or we, or we generalize from that, um, the answer is it's never going to change. Gangsterism did not start with Public Enemy and Easy e It started with Al Capone. It started with, you know, Irish mobs in Chicago. And, and, and the, the later representations emulated those people. Uh, the Wild West shoot with guns. We're talking about people killing people are going in salons, shooting each other. This is who we are as a country. We were, mm. we were built on the sort of militarism, militarism that defined who we were, the revolution, everything. This is in our DNA. That's why we are a formidable fighting force. The problem is when we do more looking out the window instead of looking in mirrors and, and looking at the, 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 the flaws in other people, instead of understanding that we have more in common than we think. We watch The Godfather, but we lament boys in the hood they're one and the freaking same it's always been in our dna and when black people do it it's not different just because you don't look like them it's the same damn thing you go to parts of kentucky where there are opioid problems in ohio and you know there's death and murder there too and drug issues but they're not treated the same they're not policed the same and i think that's the problem we're all we all have more in common than we think we're not willing to admit that Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And this week, we're taking a look at racism in America. Now, my next guest is a veteran that I served with in the Navy years ago. Anthony Elder is a former Navy chief and is a guy I learned a lot from. And Anthony's black. So I called my old buddy to have a candid conversation about the state of racism in America and what we all should be learning this week. What's going on? A long time no talk to Anthony Elder. Yes, sir. It's been a very long time. Man, good to catch up with you. And uh, I'm sorry it's under such like weird circumstances, but uh, how the hell you been? Uh, you know, I can't complain, man. It's been, um, it will have been 12 years retired on the 30th of this month. And those 12 years have gone very, very fast. But um, I feel blessed. I'm in a good place. Overall, all things considered, um, I'm happy. Well, that's about the goal right now, because between this virus crisis that has gripped the nation and then uh, the events this last week, man, happiness is harder and harder to come by. Um, let's just chat about that. Uh, of course, the reason I'm calling, the reason why we scheduled this call is because, I mean, we go way back, you and I. Yeah. Um, gosh, you weren't even a chief yet. You were like an E5 and uh, yeah. I was the lonely, lowly E3 scrubbing the deck and uh, swabbing the deck. And uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you were doing. You were just kind of standing there. I guess that was the role of a senior enlisted, right? You just kind of watched and made sure I did what I was supposed to do. Yeah, exactly. We were uh, supervising. <laughs> Call it what you want. You lazy. <laughs> you just sat on the stairs and watched me work. But uh, anyways, I wanted to have this conversation with you because we go back so far and you're black and I'm white. Let's examine the differences. Uh, there are things going on in this country that even I am blind to. And we should probably shine right. a light on it. So let's pick up with like 16 years old. We both okay. got our driver's licenses. I remember getting my speech. Your speech right. was probably a little different. Did you have to have the speech from your parent that was unique to the black experience in America? I, I believe so. And you know... The fact that you would ask me that today, 
Um, my view on it today is very different than it was at 16 years old. I think that at 16 years old, I figured that that speech was, it was necessary and it was, it just didn't seem like it was different. I don't even think that I considered, well, maybe a, a white 16 year old will not have this same conversation with his or her parents, which is if you're pulled over by the cops, how do you respond? Make sure that you act a certain way when you're out in certain places so that it won't be mistaken for this, that, or the other. And that's just the way it was. You mm -hmm. know, it's, um, it's conversation that you have at the dinner table. It's like you get a, a different education in growing up black than you do in growing up any other way. And to kind of give it a date and time, this would have been circa 1980s, right? Yeah. Um, let's see. I graduated high school in 84 at 17 when I graduated. So, yeah, we're talking early 80s. Mm, okay. Now, early 80s, I guess we can kind of understand because we are kind of relics. We are older. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad but true. We're old now. <laughs> Looking at the young population today, is that conversation still something that happens in a black household? And does it still need to be happening today? Oh, most definitely. I've got uh, four children of my own, and I have had that very conversation with them. Um, more so the boys. I mean, you have the same conversation with the girls, too, but it's it's really, really more geared toward the boys. And uh, my wife, the lady I'm married to at this time, she has two children of her own, two boys as well. And they are just a few years out of high school. And uh, she had those conversations with them, too. Here, I'm living just outside of Memphis, Tennessee. And there was a, uh, a period of time where it seemed like, um, I don't want to say that young black men were targeted but it just seemed like it was heating up more around here than at any other time. And it was very important to us to let those boys know how to behave when they're out. And we also cut their curfew. You know, you got to get back home at an earlier time. There's, there's no reason to be out so late that you're, you know, holding up a flag, basically saying, hey, come and see what I'm into or whatever. Just go out, do what you got to do and get yourself back home. I'm surprised by that because I'm, you know, my mind's thinking back to other periods in time and like maybe our parents had to have conversations about nuclear war and fallout shelters in the 1950s or, you know, when we were on the precipice of the Cold War and, and, and doom and gloom with, uh, you know, the Russians. Um, right. There might have been other conversations in other periods of time, but they don't still happen. I don't talk to my kids right. about a bomb shelter. I don't talk to my kids about the, you know, the Ruskies and the nukes. Right. You know, that, right. That's done and gone. Is it a yeah. sign that we are not going in the right direction in this country? Most definitely. That, that's exactly what it's a sign of. You know, this um, what's going on right now is very reminiscent to me of 1991. And that was the Rodney King beating out in L.A. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember it. And that, that was the first time that I really, really saw something that I thought was unbalanced, very unfair. I don't care what that guy did. I don't think anybody deserved to be beaten like that. 
1991, we had the Rodney King beating. We started having protests and riots, and things really got out of hand out there in California for a while over that. The cops that were guilty of that were let go. All four of them were free to go after doing that. So here we are almost 30 years later, and it looks like we're in the same place. It almost seems like we have not moved any at all culturally in 30 years. And that's scary to me. It's also shocking because, you know, you would think that that kind of stuff over the years dies off, but it doesn't look like it has died off at all. It looks like it may have just been simmering beneath the surface for the last 30 years. Mm, Simmering beneath the surface. Yeah, man. Um, That's a good way to put it. I guess now I want to look forward or rather let's look at today. Um, is the reaction that we're feeling to this uh, with the protests and then the violence and the looting and stuff like that? You referenced, you know, the Rodney King situation in Watts in L.A. and back in the 90s. Right. Um, is the reaction to it proportionate? I think that the reaction is proportionate, but I think that it is somewhat off-center. If you want to consider why some of these um, atrocities are happening to blacks, I would say, and this is just my opinion, I would say that you've got a lot of people out there that have some preconceived notions about blacks. They may have some about Mexicans. They may have some about Asians or any other race that we have here in America. When you've got people that are going out and protesting, it's one thing to protest and to march silently or to to chant say what you want to say right right but when you start breaking into stores and looting and stealing and uh committing violence against other people well that puts you right back in that category to have done to you what it is that you're supposed to be standing up for and i think that's where people have gotten very misguided for the last three nights here in memphis They've had a curfew for us, um, Memphians, of 10 p.m. because they've been going out and protesting downtown and around the police station and all seven nights straight. We've had protesters out there. And they've been all ethnicities, not just black folks. They've been all, yeah, yeah. all people out there protesting. But they, too, got out of hand. So now we have the National Guard. They were down here last night. Um, making sure that things stayed within acceptable boundaries and and making their presence known. It's the same thing is happening in Nashville. From what I've read, we've got 15, 20 other states out there that have had to call in the National Guard. So though I think that what they're fighting for or upset about, I think that they're going about it the only way that we can, but I don't think that it needs to overlap into violence and other criminal behavior. I don't think that that does anything to further the cause. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now we're going to continue our conversation with veterans about racism in America. And we'll jump back into my call with my old friend and former Navy chief, Anthony Elder. Now, I asked him about what needs to change. And specifically, in this part of our conversation, we discuss the intersection 
of racism and law enforcement. Well, you know, and, and that goes all the way right back to where we started, which is the conversations that parents are having with their black children. Eight times out of ten when we see what has happened, we don't see it from the beginning to the end. What seems to get on TV is somebody getting shot, somebody getting beat, something like that. We don't know what happened when the police officer walked up to the car and said, let me see your license. Did the young man or the young woman say, yes, sir? Did they say, why are you bothering me? Did they say, I don't have to give you Who knows what happens at that point? But I think that that is certainly a spot where you can start looking to see what's going on. Secondly, I think training is probably huge or has to be a, a bigger thing on the police force. Um, I know that here in the Memphis area, we were short police officers for a while. I can't say the reasons. I don't know if it was pay. I don't know what the reasons were, but we were short. All of a sudden, I start hearing ads on the radio saying that, well, Memphis now has more police officers. We've got 300 new police officers. Well, where do you get 300 police officers all of a sudden? And how do you get 300 police officers trained and ready to go out and deal with some of the other stuff they've got to deal with? You know, I can imagine that trying to be the devil's advocate and look on both sides, I can imagine that if you're a police officer, you get calls all day about hate, discontent, anger, everything negative that you can think about. If you do that day after day after day, it's reasonable to me to believe that you're going to start getting some type of, I don't know, attitude, get some type of brashness around you and it probably won't take a whole lot at all for you to decide to pull your nightstick and crack somebody across the head because you've just had it. So I think that for them, there has to be some recognition or there has to be training, retraining, retraining, retraining. And somebody has got to be able to have their thumb on the pulse of what's going on with their officers to say, you know, this dude needs to, to come out and maybe he should sit the desk for six months or so. He's a little wound up. But like I said, we also have to look at what those kids are doing when confronted by the police. They could be acting in a way that's putting them in harm, and maybe they're acting that way rightfully so because they have fears of, I've seen what happens when people are approached by the cops. I don't want to be that person, so how do I protect myself? You know, I think it's... um, it's multi-pronged. I think the, the approach has to be multi-pronged. But the good thing to me, what I think I see is these millennial kids, they're different. Hmm. And I think that, that a lot of them have um, a lot more compassion for each other, for humanness, than the old guard. You know, old folks like myself and old folks that are even older than me, we got some strict rules in our heads, whether they're right or wrong, about how things should be. And I think that these young kids are more open to possibilities that that the old guard isn't. Yeah, man. And I think to some of that, we've even seen our generation. I'll lump myself in with you old guys. All right. (laughs) 
because I'm only like four years younger. Um, <laughs> I think we've seen our generation kind of tease them. You know, we call them snowflakes and you know, you're all so sensitive and y'all got so many feelings. Uh, you're right. Absolutely. Right. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's a good thing. Um, right. <laughs> let's hope so. Let's, uh, you know, let's hope so. Let me ask you this. When we get into law enforcement and, the, and, and, and you're right, maybe the trigger finger gets itchy after you've seen so much stuff. You've been around so much violence. You've been around so much hate and discontent. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Why aren't more people coming from the inner cities or from the areas, you know, I don't want to say inner cities exclusively, but why aren't more black communities producing more young black police officers that guard their own communities? That's a good question. I'm not sure that, you know, you have different types of people. You have those that can grow up in a certain environment and say to themselves, I'm never going to live this way when I'm grown. So they move and get out of it. Then you have those that grow up in that environment and they become, for lack of a better word, institutionalized to the belief that that's the only way that they can live. That's, that's the life that they've been given. That's the way they've got to stay. So I would say that those are not going to seek going into a profession like a police officer because they probably can't stand them. They probably don't trust them. They've seen the worst of a police officer. As far as the other ones are concerned, I don't know. Mm. I, I, I really don't know. That's a, that's a very good question. I mean, it's not silly and dumb and white of me to think like, oh, well, that would just fix it. If you guys could just, you know, help each other in your own neighborhoods, then it might all blend better and there'd be more of a trust factor. But I'm I'm just hoping and wishing for something that I can find that will make a material difference because I don't want all this broken glass and all this busted ass to end up just being for naught. Yeah. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, it has. It has. And uh, I also believe that... I can't think of any of these incidents where the police officers have been held accountable to the extent that a civilian would have in the same position. And I believe that, you know, sometimes you have to make an example out of somebody in order to get the attention of everybody else that's watching. And it's terrible to have to do that, but I think that if, if this particular incident with the George Floyd goes the way that it should go, that all the protesters are saying it should go, that looking at the video tells us it should go. If these four officers take a fall, a serious fall, it's got to start putting the brakes on it somewhere. It's at least got to have somebody thinking, take that sense, uh, incident where you've got one cop with his knee on his neck and you've got three others standing there watching. Somebody should have stepped in and said, this is too much. If he's already got cuffs on, he's already down. Why are we holding him here? If they can't take responsibility for each other, their partners, etc., then the only other way to do it is justice has to, has to prevail somehow. One would hope. Yeah, and maybe showing a heavier hand of justice might just be a right. A, will begin to satisfy the void that has existed for so many years. I mean, as long as we can remember, like you'd said, going back to the '90s and uh, Mark Furman. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just so glad that we're having this conversation. It's 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 probably one as we mentioned at the front of this that we that we maybe even had back as young enlisted guys just sitting right. together, but. <laughs> 
man, I'm glad we're having it. And uh, I'm just so glad that I feel comfortable enough around you to ask these kind of just grasping for a straw in the dark kind of question. But um, I really right. appreciate you, buddy. Hey, not, not a problem. Eye on Veterans Weekend has been presented by University of Maryland Global Campus. Choose from 90-plus programs and specializations to accelerate your military or civilian career and find out how our dedicated military and veteran advisors can help you navigate your benefits to save you time and money. University of Maryland Global Campus. Find out how we're made for you. Visit umgc.edu. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.